Hi everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are in your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Hello, everybody. Hello from sunny South Florida. And I got to tell my friends in Canada, it's wonderful down here today. And I did hear that it's a little bit on the warm side up there. So please come on down, enjoy a swimming pool and the ocean, and enjoy the heat because it's part of our life. So today is a really interesting day. It's an interesting show. I have got a guest on today that I think that, you know, I always say that so many of us are sisters by other misters. My guest today is, is Elizabeth Myers, and Elizabeth is coming to us from Texas. But today's show is going to be a little bit different. Today is about two strong women, and I'm going to say that humbly because we are, two strong women that were taught to, as I call, suck it up buttercup, man up, woman up, whatever you want to call it, and keep those things inside of us that have had a real profound effect on us, but have chosen to speak up about what has happened in a way that brings back memories. So today's going to be a very vulnerable, open conversation by two moms who have had a loss, but are taking that loss and using it for good, using the purpose for good. And so I would like to welcome my guest, Ms. Elizabeth Myers from Northeast Texas. Hey, Elizabeth, are you there? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on today. It is my pleasure, and I'm so excited. And first off, I want to thank you for your service in the Air Force. I should have the Air Force music playing in the background. Um, <laughs> You're an Air Force Academy graduate in 1994, and just kind of, I always like to go back a little bit in time, but for us, we've got a lot to talk about, but I do want to ask you, what got you into the Air Force? How did you get into the Academy? Because that was, that's a pretty tough place to get into, especially for women and back then. And what did you do in the Air, in the Air Force uh, Academy, and what did you do a little bit afterwards? So there's a lot in that one <laughs> question. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I think that's more than one question, but yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, um, definitely growing up as a child, my dad had a big influence on me. He had been enlisted in the Air Force during the Vietnam War era, and he was always telling us stories and stuff. I I don't remember that time personally. I was very young, but he did get a, a remote assignment to the Philippines, and my mom and I went with him and lived all kinds of adventures. So I've heard all the stories. I don't remember any of the stories. Um, but that definitely had an influence, you know, in the way he told the stories. The Air Force sounded like a really fun place. Yeah. <laughs> when I got to the academy, I'm like, uh, Dad, I think you left out some parts. But um, 
And then interestingly, I had this one experience that it doesn't seem that profound if I just tell you the story, but for whatever reason, it had a big influence on me. And we were on a family vacation. We were making a road trip and the van in front of us on the highway, I'm not sure what happened. There wasn't a, a wreck, but somehow it swerved off the road and, and flipped over in the, the median in the middle of the highway. And so we were right behind him. So my dad pulled over, you know, to see if we could help or offer any assistance. And somebody coming from the other direction had already pulled up had seen it happen. And, and that gentleman got there just a second or two before my dad. And he pointed at my dad and he said, you go call 911. This was back in the day before cell phones were invented yet, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, our family hopped back in the car. You know, we went, found a payphone, a few exits down, called 911, came back to the scene to see if there was anything else we could do to help. And this guy just had, like, all the chaos under control. He was having people help. You know, he was doing stuff. He was taking care of the situation. And, and we realized, oh, we'll just be in the way if we're here. So we went ahead and got on. But, you know, processing that with our family afterwards, my dad said, you know, you can tell that guy has had military training the way that he stayed calm under pressure. He, he didn't say, ah, somebody call 911. You know, he pointed at somebody and said, you call 911. And he was directive. And for some reason, that just had a big impact on me. And I'm like, I want to be like that. Now, the funny thing is, all these years later, I'm like, you know, if you want to be cool and collected in a crisis, you don't need to go to military training. You need to have eight children and then homeschool them. <laughs> and you don't ask for, you don't ask for patience because then chaos hits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's, that's how I wound up at the academy. Um, I knew I wanted to go there from like early on in high school and every year. The, they would have the little college night, you know, and I'd go up to the liaison officer for the academy, and he's like, yeah, whatever, kid, you know, and he kept pushing me away. But And finally, my junior year, he's like, okay, you're still coming back. You're serious, you know, and so he really helped me through the whole process. And for me, a- academically, I was pretty strong. For me, the hard part was doing a pull-up. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, you know, I, I went to a gym, and I worked out, and I did all these things. So passing that, that physical fitness test uh, was the big hurdle for me. And then you need a congressman's appointment, you know, so I, I clearly remember that interview. And I had also been applying for the Naval Academy, but when I went and visited there for a week, it was, I, I was, basically I withdrew my application because I realized the Air Force had done a better job of integrating women at that time. My, my, yeah, oldest, it, son went, my oldest son went to the Naval Academy and mm-hmm. I totally see that. Yeah. So I, I was just not really impressed with how I was treated while I was there. And I, I thought, oh, the Air Force Academy is so much better. After having gone through that experience, I realized the Air Force Academy at least knew, okay, it's wrong to be sexist and persecute women, so we're going to mm-hmm. hide it. Whereas the Naval Academy was like, yeah, we're sexist and we're proud of it and we've got the T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. That was my impression. And now it's so, back in 99. You were around there, 1994. Yeah, in 90. Yeah. So I related a story during the interview of what I experienced at the Naval Academy, which was the big, you know, finale of the week was we were going to have this briefing on submarines. And it was a big, exciting thing. But because women weren't allowed on submarines, women weren't allowed in the briefing. Mm. So they took the handful of us women down the hall to this other little classroom to have a briefing on opportunities for women in the Navy. 
And the lady there, I don't remember a lot of what she said, but I remember the exact moment that I'm like, this is not for me. She said, you can do a lot of neat jobs in the Navy. You can be a nurse or you can be a secretary for some really important men. And that's when I went, check, please. <laughs> I, will, I will take my intelligence and leadership skills elsewhere where they will be better appreciated. So I told that story during the interview with the congressman and the, the lady, who, there were three or four people there, but the lady who was there was like really fired up about that story. So I think, you know, she definitely voted for me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking at the timeline. You were getting in as I was getting out. Oh, and really? Yeah, I, I got out in December of 1990. And uh, I remember my exit interview with the general officer at the Pentagon. And I, I, at that point, I said, sir, I'm, I'm going home to take care of my family. And I said, I don't want to be like the women, the colonels that I see. And, you know, they were nice women, but I just didn't want to be like them. I, I felt like I needed to be there for my kids. Um, but I was interviewed a couple weeks ago, and someone asked me, you know, what, what was it like being in the service? Did you have any, was there any sexism? Was there any, you know, abuse? For me, no. Um, I saw it. Uh, you know, other and some other women, I hate to say, brought it on themselves, but some of them did. Um, mm -hmm. But I just was me, and I, I get the impression that you were just you, and you know, mm -hmm. you wanted to do your best. And so when you went in, did you, this is for girls, you know, thinking about going to the academy? Did you have a math background? What was your educational? Yeah, I so math, I never thought I was strong in. Um, it's only actually been recently that I kind of learn to appreciate my math skills. I always thought I was bad at math, but looking back on my educational experience, there were three different times where I demoted myself. Like I tested for a higher level of math and I didn't. So going into the academy, they gave us all these academic tests and I tested into calculus too, because I'd taken calculus one in high school, but um, I'm like, no, 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 that's too intimidating. Put me back in calculus one. So I repeated calculus one just because I was afraid of it. Um, but I did always enjoy science. Science was always my favorite subject. And of course, you know, I'm a writer, I'm an author now, so I always loved reading and writing. Um, so what did you, what did you get had, your degree in? So my degree is in human factors engineering, which is, it sounds fancy, but it's actually a branch of uh, behavioral science. Okay. And um, it's basically how do you design, in, in this case, cockpits to work with the way the human mind works. And um, how do you, you know, a lot of things that are, are late accidents that are labeled user error or, you know, it's the fault of the human operator. A lot of times if the system had been designed better, they wouldn't have made that mistake in the first place. I got to tell you, having two sons that are pilots, that sounds really cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a really um, fun degree and I had hoped to uh, use that degree when I got out in the Air Force. That didn't wind up happening. And I would just like to backtrack a little and say my experience in the atmosphere at the Air Force Academy versus active duty are two totally different universes that are not related to each other. So while there was a lot of sexism and issues at the Academy, I, I never had a problem active duty. Okay. Uh, that was a totally different situation. I felt respected and, and everything. And plus, you know, in an active duty situation, you're not living with the guys you're working with. Right. I, you know, I basically lived in a men's frat house. Or, you know, we were just, we were in close quarters. We were confined. We weren't allowed to leave for four years. <laughs> right. So that just, you know, creates a host of problems. Um, when people are working active duty and they have their own families and you go home to your own family in the evening, then there's not as much issue at work 
I think. So your, um, hus your husband was at the academy at the same time. You guys knew each other? Were you, um, so he knew of me. Uh, women kind of stuck out like a sore thumb back then. Yeah. Uh, at, at that time, we were only 10% female. Now, I think it's closer to 25% female at the academy. Okay. And I also should say it's a, it's a totally different world today. We went back for our 25th reunion, and my jaw hit the table. I was like, oh, my goodness, it is so different. So a lot of the issues that I had and kind of the, the trauma and the PTSD that my class has is not, no longer a thing. Um, it's much more um, conducive to humanity now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would say to young ladies who are interested in that now, I would say go for it. It's a much, uh, much different world than when I went through it. There's been a lot of changes, a lot of work done, uh, a lot of problems that were dealt with. And so uh, it's just, it's a really great, great place now. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was an experiment. I mean, it, it, I when I was uh, when I got into on active duty it was 1983, and and I was I think I mentioned to you in one of our emails that one of my friends was the first graduating class of the academy mm -hmm. uh, for women, and it it was a tough place. It was really tough because mm -hmm. nobody really knew what to do with you guys. And yes, and and you know I remember too my son at the Naval Academy there was a there was a feeling in this that uh, they didn't really want the girls there. And they still didn't. And so, you know, they had to deal with that. And mm -hmm. it, part of me as a, as a warrior woman was like, well, I can do that. I can be, you know, involved in that stuff. And then part of me is like, well, you know, if we can't go into combat, then we are taking some of those positions away. So I see both sides. Uh, in any event, I, I thank you for your service and thank you for getting through the academy. And I see the picture of your husband and he's a, he was a, hot dog pilot, and uh, I've got a, my heart goes out to my pilot friends and, and buddies. Uh, he is retired recently, is that correct? Yes, he is in the process. Technically, he is on terminal leave right now, but okay. um, next month we will be officially retired after, if you include his academy time, it's like 31 years of service. And, we, uh, he, is, and he is not an empty nester. <laughs> oh, no, far from it. <laughs> so Our nest get, is very full. Let's get that one right out of the bat. You guys have how many kids at home now? We have eight children. We have four boys and four girls. And our oldest two have launched off into adulthood. Our oldest son is in the Marines, and he's married. And um, our third oldest is getting ready to launch uh, next week. He's just uh, gotten a job. And so he's moving out and, and moving on. He's got his bachelor's degree. And so we have – that will be five still at home. And the next oldest one, our fourth child, is doing uh, college online at home right now through Liberty University. So there's the four youngest kids, the, the second half of the children, are, I'm still homeschooling them. So. But you guys didn't have a break. You've got the, you were telling me that the kids are two years apart. So it wasn't like uh -huh. the, first, the first half were, you know, at this age, and then you no. had a break. It's no, they um, – we had them, yeah, every two years, and I did the math at one point, and there were 14 years straight where I was either pregnant or nursing or both. And so when my youngest turned five, he's nine right now, but when he turned five, I kind of picked my head up and go, wow, where did the last 20 years of my life go? Because <laughs> I, was, I was busy. They're buying. You guys should have been sponsored by Huggies. <laughs> 
Probably so. I remember living in Germany and I had, my two boys were, you know, under three. And I would go to the commissary and I would get two sizes of Huggies. And I, the, the looks I got from people mm-hmm. were like, what mm-hmm. are you? So I can just imagine what you went through. Um, yeah. And you guys, did you, did you move around a lot? Oh, yeah. So it was kind of the joke that every time we moved, we added a, another That's child right. to the process. So the moves got more and more complicated as time went on. But, you know, most of our assignments were around two years. Um, so we just did our 15th move in 25 years of marriage. So it's been a lot of moving. So in the house you're in now, you're going to be able to paint the walls something other than white. <laughs> yeah, I... I'm actually not, that wasn't what I was looking most forward to. What I, what I was really looking forward to was donating all the curtains and curtain rods that I don't need because, you know, you always save them for the next house to go. And um, also, I've always wanted to have, like, chickens and a garden and stuff like that. I don't know what I'm doing, but, but we do. We have chickens and sheep. And so we're kind of out in the country in northeast Texas. And so I'm just having fun learning how to do all that. You know, we've, we've lived on base a lot. You know, you're not yeah. allowed to have chickens on base, obviously. And they're difficult to move with and whatever. So um, well, I've really been looking forward to doing this. And so we're, luck, we're living the dream. <laughs> good luck with the chickens. My oldest had chickens in Yuma. And when I went out to visit, all I could do is like, had to bring the hose out and spray everything down. He was not on a farm. He was in a neighborhood. And uh, uh, yeah. I said, these are really expensive eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, ours aren't laying eggs yet. They're still, they're they're just now starting to look like adult chickens, but they got another month or so before they'll make breakfast for us. But we're looking forward to that. Well, train the little ones to go out and clean them and pick up the eggs. It was so funny. My three-year-old grandson used to go out and get the eggs for me, and they were so because they're pretty. They're pretty eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then one day, he apparently he showed up with a chicken that was getting pecked by one of his bud- the buddies. He was so he's running around the inside of the house with this chicken, which is just as big as he was. <laughs> yeah. funniest, funniest thing ever. But I'm like, uh-huh. you guys can hang on to the chickens. Good luck. So it sounds like you've had an extraordinary life, fun life, exciting life, full of kids, full of noise, but. The reason for our talk today is, in addition to all of that, there are things that have happened, and you're the one to say that I've got these beautiful children, but there's still this hole in my heart. So we're just mm-hmm. going to put it out there. Elizabeth, tell me mm-hmm. what happened, and, and let's just get into that story, because it's very yeah. personal to me, too. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, a lot of people look at me with eight kids, and they go, oh, you know, that would drive you crazy. Uh, but what I often share with people is, you know, it's not the eight children I have that have pushed me over the edge. It's the one that I lost. And um, it was our sixth pregnancy. Um, we were on vacation, actually, away from home, visiting relatives. And I was 14 weeks pregnant, and, and my son's body was just kind of suddenly born. I didn't realize that he must have passed away, you know, a couple of days before. I didn't know that. And it wasn't until after he was born, then, you know, my body started uh, bleeding and, you know, reacting and kind of freaking out. So, you know, anytime you lose a child, it's dramatic, but also just the way it all happened and unfolded was very, it it produced a lot of trauma in my life and a lot of almost kind of PTSD of, you know, for months, I, I just kept reliving those moments. And, you know, I had trouble engaging with the present because I was, dwelling in the past. And I just really struggled with, I got stuck in a place of grief because our culture doesn't really know how to grieve the passing of a child who wasn't born yet. And 
the statistics say like 25% of women, I think, have had a miscarriage, but we, we never talk about it. Yeah. And so I was just totally unprepared for this. I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to, you know, if, if a older child had passed away, you know, there would be a funeral, a memorial service. People would, you know, honor that life. But in this case, even the hospital refused to refer to him as a baby. They called him the product of conception. Because he was less than 20 weeks, in their mind, he was not fully human. And that was just devastating to me. They wouldn't give me his body back so that I could, you know, bury him. They cremated him and spread his ashes themselves. And I wasn't allowed to go to that ceremony because they didn't want to mess with differing religious beliefs of parents. So they just said, oh, you know, whatever doctor or nurse represented your child, they'll go on their behalf. Well, I was out of town. Where was this? It was in Dallas. We, we lived in uh, Alabama at the time. We were stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base, and we had come back to visit family in Dallas. And, um, you know, he was born at my parents' house, and then we went to the ER because, you know, I started bleeding and situations, and we took his body with us, okay. and they took it and wouldn't give it back. I, so, I'm, just, I'm just sitting here, you know... Because you and I talked a little bit. I mean, I, I lost mm-hmm. a baby at 18 weeks, but it was different. Mm-hmm. I didn't deliver. I, I went in for an appointment. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking to someone about journaling, and I think you're a big proponent mm-hmm. of journaling. I was looking mm-hmm. at my journal this morning uh, of, on March of 1990, talking about my doctor's point. I had a girl from flying. I flew in. I w- went into the hospital. And went in for my OB appointment to get, you know, the ultrasound and everything. And we we're going to have a great weekend. My friend had flown in for the weekend. And there was no heartbeat. And just a description of that. And that led to, you know, I was at, before, like you said, the 20 weeks is the, is the cutoff point. That's the point where you either go into labor to deliver. Or in my case, it was, a, they called it a D&E, not a DNC. Um, mm-hmm. But then they also didn't call it a baby, they, and they called it, you know, we we call it miscarriage. I was reading what I wrote, and they they called it a fetal demise. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of technical. Um, but again, I never I never saw the baby either. But I did get a pathology report, and that's how I found out that ours was a little boy. Mm-hmm. So, but nobody talks about it. And like you were saying, you know, people got silent, and then mm-hmm. afterwards, it's like, well, you can have more kids. You're young. Like, well, right. that's not what we want to hear. So you actually delivered the baby spontaneously? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was just, I, I had been cramping a little bit the night before. And so I woke up to nurse my next, you know, my youngest child at the time. And I told my husband then what was, what was going on and, you know, that something didn't quite feel right. And so he put his hand on my belly and prayed for me, prayed for the child. And right as he said, Lord, we surrender this child to you, my water broke. And I ran to the bathroom and his body was born. I could just hold him in the palm of my hand. And the first thing I said was, it's a boy, you know, because we we hadn't known the gender yet. He wasn't mature enough yet to tell on an ultrasound. But obviously, when you're holding him in your hand, you can tell. And, um, you know, it was obvious at that point that he he had already passed. You know, his, his spirit was already with Jesus. And, but I mean, even if he had have been alive at that point, he was way too young to survive on his own. Um, so it was just really traumatizing and really devastating. And, you know, to hold your baby in your hand like that and then to have people tell you he's not really human or it doesn't really matter. 
I, I tried to find out what happened, what went wrong. You know, I had all these questions and the, the doctors and nurses, the medical people I talked to, they're like, we don't really care. If you have three miscarriages in a row, then we'll look into it. Yeah. And I was kind of like, that's like if, I, if my child gets kidnapped or murdered and I go to the police and I'm like, you know, help me find my child, help me figure out what happened. And they go, well, we don't do it till it happens three times in a row. Yeah. I, just, I don't know. That just, that was kind of felt like a slap in the face. And um, I don't know. You would think that people who worked in a medical field, you know, I'm not the only woman that's ever lost a baby. You think they would have some training or some awareness of what to, you know, how to handle that. But even people who do these kinds of things for a profession, like were speechless, they would just kind of awkwardly leave or, you know, they didn't, people would say, oh, well, it's, you know, good thing you weren't further along in the pregnancy. And I'm like, that's like if somebody's three-year-old dies and you say, well, good thing they weren't five because you would have been more attached to them at five. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not the case. It doesn't, uh, yeah, I even had a, a friend of my, well, an acquaintance who had 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 a full-term stillbirth. And so I went to her and I thought, well, maybe she'll understand. And even she said, oh, no, you know, I, a stillbirth and a miscarriage are nothing alike and kind of dismissed me. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I mean, it was just really hard to find somebody who could understand what I was going through. So uh, did you end up in the hospital then for a period of time or you just went home? Um, so we just went to the ER and they kind of checked me out and they said, oh, you're fine. But I think they, they weren't aware and I was too discombobulated to be aware of how much I was bleeding at that time. It was yeah. really kind of excessive, but we didn't realize it. So it kind of tapered off that week and then we went back home and then that next that, that happened on a Monday. It was actually Memorial Day weekend. It was Monday. So I just passed the 14th anniversary of his passing. Yeah. Um, we went back home the next week, and it was the following Sunday. I kind of just, I don't want to be too graphic, but I woke up in a pool of my own blood, basically. I just started hemorrhaging and uncontrollably couldn't stop it. So at that point, I went, this is a week later, I went to the ER, and they wound up having to do like a DNC. Um, yeah. They, I think it was just a C actually, because the dilation was already, had already occurred. But basically part of the placenta got stuck back, and so it was not allowing the uterus to contract and yeah. turn things off. Yeah. So they had to go in and remove that. And then after that, I was able to do the rest of the healing on my own. But I lost a lot of blood, and but not quite. I didn't quite cross the threshold for needing a transfusion. I was very close. Uh, so I was anemic for months afterwards, which didn't help the whole grieving process. <laughs> exactly. And then also not being able to to really slow down because you had five mm -hmm. other children yes. there yeah. that needed mommy and didn't know what was going on. Did any of the kids, they were all pretty young, did any of them understand what, what had happened or did um, you just so like that, go on as that, normal? That morning before my husband took me to the hospital, because we were supposed to go to a family um you know, picnic kind of a thing for Memorial Day. And so instead of that, my husband and I went to the ER and my, my parents took the kids to the party. But um, so we told them what had happened. You know, I mean, they, they had known that I was pregnant, you know, as a family, we had prayed for the baby. And um, so we told them, and at that point, it was only my oldest son, you know, he reacted, he, he cried a little. I think he kind of understood. Obviously, the youngest one didn't know what was going on. But um it wasn't until later that my second oldest, my daughter, she was seven at the time that it happened, but she kind of went through a grieving process. 
later of just trying to process it in her own way. And that was hard for me because I, I was struggling with how to process it myself. And, you know, just, I didn't know how to help her. <laughs> Fortunately, um, she felt comfortable to confide in a Sunday school teacher that she knew at church. And that lady was very compassionate to her and, you know, helped her deal with the stuff. You know, when she would have feelings come up during Sunday school class, this teacher was just very loving towards her. And I was so grateful for that. I didn't even really know her. She wasn't, it was a big church and uh, she wasn't like a friend of mine or anything, but she, she was there for my daughter when I, I couldn't figure out how to be there for my daughter. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Did you ever get to the point where you were blaming yourself for what was going on? Oh yeah. So because they never found out a medical reason of what happened to him or why he passed away. And, and part of that is because they wouldn't do my pleadings of asking, you know, trying to find out. Um, so I found a million ways to blame myself of, you know, how it was. And, it, and then even, you know, inadvertently people will say things that even just the word miscarriage, I'm like, I hate that word. It sounds like I dropped my baby or you say yeah. I lost my child. Even I'm like, I, I didn't lose my child. I mean, I know where he is. He's in heaven. My baby died, but we don't use that language with it. And so, you know, that's, that's challenging. And how, how did you get over that? Because you're going to, I had heard you talk one time that, you know, forgiveness, forgiveness is a tough thing, especially when it comes to you and your mm-hmm. own actions. How did you forgive yourself first? Um, it's a tough thing because, you know, that, that blame game, that self-blame, and there's absolutely nothing you can do. And I, you know, I knew that too, mm-hmm. but like you, you're thinking, did I not eat right? Did not, did I not exercise mm-hmm. right? Was I too busy? You know, what did I do? Because we didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't do those kinds of things. Um, but that, there are other people that you had to learn to forgive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, that was a big part of it. And for me, you know, my biggest hang-up, like I said, was kind of with the things that the medical personnel had said and done. And I got to the place where I was kind of like. Uh, just following Jesus' example, you know, they were in the act of crucifying him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, you know, I can kind of look at that and go, oh, they sure did know what they were doing. You know, they were had a fake trial, unjustly accused him. They were killing an innocent man. Um, they they were nailing him to the cross. But he says they didn't know what they were doing. And, and I kind of came to that same place of, you know, all these hurtful comments that were made to me. The people didn't realize what they were doing. People don't know what to say. And a lot of it was just clumsiness, not trying to be hurtful to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so that helped me forgive others. Forgiving myself is a much harder thing. And ultimately, it came to just resting and trusting in God's plan. And I, I wrestled with questions and doubts for a long time, for years. And it really shook my faith. And that's, a, a lot of that is in my book. But um, it was just working through this process of I realized that even if God came down and gave me all the answers I wanted, it, it still wouldn't heal my hurt. It's, I still would be missing my son. I still would be grieving. And that actually what I, I don't want all the answers to all my questions. I actually just want God's presence with me. And um, so I think when I just kind of more surrendered to God has a plan and he's good even when I don't understand it then that kind of released all the the guilt and the blame that I was putting on myself. Um, There there was nothing specific that pointed to it was my fault, and there was nothing 
specific that pointed to anything else. So it's just, I'll never know this side of heaven. I, I don't know what caused it. And uh, blaming myself is just, is not healthy. Even, I mean, it, I don't even have like a reason to, you know, there, there are other places where I did make a legitimate mistake, you know, and I blame myself for that. But in this case, it, it all the blame was just imaginary in my head. Um, so the big part of forgiving others and forgiving myself was really healing and restoring my relationship with God. And it, this may sound strange. Uh, and it's not, I know it's not theologically correct, but I also had to work through this idea of forgiving God, not that he needs my forgiveness and not that he ever does anything wrong, but I had felt betrayed. And so, you know, I kind of had to work through that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. And you understand what I'm, what I'm saying by that. I'm not, accusing him of any wrongdoing but i felt that way at the time well i think any any trial that we go through you know that we can't understand it's it's part of us to start blaming to to, mm-hmm. to find fault in somebody you know not necessarily ourselves but in somebody because we can't explain what happened it was i was mm-hmm. reading something this morning it was called um, a story called my unrecognized blessings and in it it goes you go through trials and difficulties in life so you can learn how to recognize blessings and be grateful for them. Mm. And then the author goes on, I realized that I had to experience hardships so that I could appreciate Heavenly Father's blessings. Through my trials, I recognized my blessings and became grateful for them. And then I went to my journal, and after, you know, on the day that I lost my little guy, John Henry, it says, um, my poppy, that was my husband, is uh, terribly sad but we both realize we've got so much to be thankful for and we've got each other to love and cherish. And that was in the midst of something horrible, you know? But I think it comes back to the way we process things, the way we process trials and going back to that, you know, suck it up, buttercup. It's not that we want to dismiss what happened because I don't know, it's been a while though. You did dismiss it for a while, didn't you? Did you hide this for a while? Yeah. So I think initially I tried to kind of go, Hey, something's wrong, but I got enough people that didn't get it or, you know, they would just distance themselves from me. Um, Again, this whole military lifestyle, (laughs) I was, we were at a off cycle kind of move thing. My husband was at a course at Maxwell Air Force Base and, you know, it lasts a year and we were the December class. And this happened at the end of May. So everybody who knew that I was pregnant moved away the week mm-hmm. after it happened. They never even knew that I lost the baby. And then we waited a month over the summer, and then a whole new class of people came in. And so it was this arduous process of introducing myself to new people when I was just gone through this. And what's the question everybody asks you? Oh, how many kids do you have? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't answer that question because if I said five, I felt like I was joining everybody else and denying the existence of my son that, I was denying his life ever existed. But if I said six, and then people were like, well, you only have five here, you know, then I had to say, well, I just lost a baby. And then they'd go, oh, and they just move on. So mm-hmm. I did get to the point where, where I hit it. And I, I love the title of your thing of the woman behind the smile, because that I just got to the point where I, I fake it. You know, and, and in my book, I talk about how I, I grew up as a dancer you know, and mm-hmm. kind of that thing of the show must go on and you smile no matter how it feels. And then I went from there to the military where it's, you know, all about military bearing and you keep a straight face through anything. And so I just kind of fell back on those two training models of 
I'm dying on the inside, but I'll mm-hmm. put on a smile on the outside. You know, nobody knew how bad I was suffering. And part of it was pride. Part of it was, I feel like Christians should be joyful and peaceful and I'm depressed and anxious. What's wrong with me? There's a stigma with mental health issues, both in Christian circles and in military circles. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my husband was going up for squadron command and I didn't want to highlight the fact that I was having mental health issues because I thought that would hurt his chances of getting the job that he wanted, mm-hmm. you know? So I, there were, there were all these compounding factors of why I put on a smile and I didn't really start to get free from that till I said, Hey, I'm, something's wrong. I'm, I'm messed up. I'm broken. I need help. And so it wasn't until the real woman that was behind the smile came out and said, Hey, I'm here. And that's where my healing started. How did this affect, and I've talked to other men before, how did this affect your husband? So very I kind of wish he was on the show because I would, I would ask him. I, I think yeah. it's a valuable side of the story to hear. Right. It, it affected him very differently, and it was, it was difficult for him to comprehend how I was feeling at first. It, to me, I felt like I had lost a child just as if any of our other children. It was the same degree of grief. It wasn't less because he hadn't been born yet. To my husband, he felt like he was grieving a stranger. Mm-hmm. He, you know, it's like if he had read an obituary in the newspaper of somebody passing away that he didn't know, he would go, oh, you know, that's really sad. That's, that's tragic, a bummer. But then he would just move on. You know, initially, I couldn't understand why he wasn't more upset and he couldn't understand why I couldn't move on. You know, eventually we worked through all these things and we came to the understanding that you know different things affect people in different ways and often it's not just what happens to us in life but it's how we interpret what happened to us in life that kind of makes the difference but everybody grieves in a different way on a different timeline you know I've even talked to other women who have lost children and it did not impact them as profoundly as it impacted me Um, so I think we just have to give grace to everybody and, and let everybody process their emotions the way that they need to um, now, since then, we've learned so much, you know, I didn't, some people have gone, you know, when my book comes out, they're like, well, why didn't you tell me that you were hurting so bad? I'm like, I didn't know how I did, you know, this was all new for me too. I didn't know how to tell you what I needed then. It's taken years of work and prayer and therapy <laughs> to yeah. get to the point where I can articulate all of this, uh, you know, but I went through years going, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just know that I feel bad. Um, so we've been able to work through a lot of stuff. But then as a commander, several times, my husband has had the opportunity to counsel other young dads when their wife had a miscarriage or lost a baby. And um, we've gotten feedback from those couples that I, I'm not sure what he said. I wish I had have a recording of that. But how, how much that impacted him. It happened uh, to one of his squadron members while he was deployed. And so, you know, the, the wife is at home dealing with this loss and the husband is overseas, you know, which further complicates it. Um, And he said the conversation he had, this uh, young father had with his wife on the phone before he talked to my husband and the one after he talked to my husband were just 180, you know, completely different. And Mm -hmm. so in speaking to my husband, he was better able to understand what, what his wife was going through and better able to, you know, help her out as well as he could from the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like good has come out of that, that my husband's able to to speak to other dads in that situation. 
and articulate more what their wife might be feeling. You know, again, everybody's different. Not everybody's going to be, you know, experience it the same way I can. But he can just kind of present them with a different perspective of, hey, you know, men, I think, I think they don't really connect as much until the baby's actually there, you know, uh, till the baby's born. Right. We, we connect and bond with the baby because, you know, they're a part of our body. <laughs> we can't yeah. help it. Um, so I, I think it's just a different experience. And my husband was really understanding and, and took good care of me, you know, especially early on, I was physically weak for a long time. And, you know, like you mentioned, we had five other kids, which um, was actually a huge blessing because if I didn't have them, I wouldn't have gotten out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. They're what kept me going. They're the reason I continued to want to live, you know? Um, yeah. It's very different how moms and dads handle this and even from one mom to the next is different. Uh, so well, we just need I, to give, give everybody grace. Well, and I, and I think that we need to be able to talk about it. Because yeah. I, like you, you know, when I had my first miscarriage, it was before I even had a live birth. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Well, then everybody and their uncle comes out and says, well, I had one, I had one, I had one. I was like, why didn't you tell me? You know, and then yeah. I, I tried to be Pollyanna. I say, well, at least I can get pregnant, you know. And then mm-hmm. my, my next one was my, my oldest son, my li- a live birth. Um, but I, I found that, especially after I lost John Henry, is like, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I couldn't mm-hmm. say what had happened. I couldn't explain like you. You can't explain what had happened. People feel bad, um, mm-hmm. but how do you move on? And I always thought that all the emphasis was put on the mothers and not on the husbands. And I, and I as I, uh, the, my kid's dad had passed away 11 years ago, but I was thinking about him and, and I was like, you know, nobody ever asked Lou how he felt. And so mm-hmm. he'd go back to work. He was a major. He was doing his stuff. He would. He went back to work, and it was like things were normal. Um, but then I remarried, and my husband, CJ, um, they lost a baby at seven months. And I was talking to him this morning about our, our call today, and it's still very emotional for him, but he goes, you know what? That was the point in time where it's, it changed my relationship. And he went off to work. He didn't talk about it. And he's like, you know what? That fundamentally changed his life. But mm-hmm. nobody talked about it. It mm-hmm. changed their relationship because they didn't talk about it. Yeah. And I said, you know what? We need to be able to stand up and speak up. And that's exactly why we're having the show is because mm-hmm. I think even the men need to learn how to speak about it. I interviewed a man. Yeah. And we got onto that topic, and he said, Deb, this is the first time anybody's ever asked about how I felt. Mm. And it was very important because their marriage split up too. I mean, I honor you and your hubby for sticking together and and really creating this great family um, in spite of that happening because that could have split you up. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but losing a child is like, one of, uh, you know, a leading cause of, of marriages not surviving because, mm-hmm. you know, they handle the grief differently and, and whatever. And it, it, you know, it just splinters things apart. And I think that's no less true if your child dies before he or she was born. You know, mm-hmm. I, we try to sometimes put pregnancy life into this different category. Uh, but to me, it's, the same it's just it's the same life it's the same child it's just you know inside the womb or outside the womb it's still all the same to me Mm -hmm. 
and I don't know, we kind of put this artificial barrier up of, you know, be, before the child is born, it's like not really in existence in some way. I love how they measure age in Korea. We were stationed in Korea for a year. But um, when you're born, you're a year old. Yeah. They count the nine months before. And then everybody changes their age in January, which we kind of do in our family anyway, because it's hard to keep track of all the so like. <laughs> At the end of an even year, all my kids are even ages. At the end of an odd year, they're all odd. So <laughs> we just kind of switch everybody in January because it's easier. There you go. I never heard of that. That's fun. Uh, but Lou, you, Lou used to say that too. He said, "Well, you're going into your your 51st year, your 52nd year." I'm like, "No, I'm not. You know, here we're trying to stay back a year." He's like, "No, yeah. you're in your next year," which is yeah. really true. You know, uh -huh. it's, you're really uh -huh. true. It's funny. So you have now you've made this your mission. You've become the woman with the smile not the woman behind the smile, and tell us about your book, and, you know, what, what are you telling people that you're talking to? What is, the, what is your uh, message about hope and moving forward? How do, how do we mm -hmm. do that? So I went for five years with untreated depression, basically, and I didn't realize that's what it was for much of that time. Uh, but finally, the pain of staying the same exceeded the pain of making changes in my life. And I told my husband, I'm like, something is wrong and I need help. And he's like, okay, let's get you help. Let's, let's support this. And at the time, I didn't know, you know, am I exhausted because I'm depressed? Or am I depressed because I'm so exhausted? Or is it all a spiritual thing because I'm angry at God? You know, like, how do I fix this? How do I fix how I feel? And I didn't know. So I just military training comes into play i said i'm going to attack this on all four fronts spiritually physically mentally and emotionally and i just thought of you know what's the next best baby step so you know i did i went to my doctor i got on a med medication i started taking better care of myself physically those are all in the, the physical area as a mom of eight i was self-care was non-existent so i'm a big proponent of self-care i'm a big proponent of saying i need help of, of integrating the woman with the smile and the woman without the smile, you know, mm -hmm. there's some truth in, in both, but I think we just need to be okay with that dichotomy of, you know, I'm hurting, but there's also blessing and I'm, I'm very happy, but I also have this deep sadness, this wound that's not healed yet. Um, and kind of being able to express both those things. I struggled for so long with why do I feel so bad? My, you know, I have a great family. I have these amazing kids. My husband and I have a great relationship. He's got a good job. You know, so then on top of feeling depressed, I threw a big slab of guilt on there. Mm. So I think it's okay to acknowledge both the smile and the thing that's going on behind the scenes. So I would say get help. You know, physically, I took those steps. Emotionally, I went and I got counseling. And it took a couple of tries to find a therapist that I clicked with. Um, so I also encourage people, keep trying. You know, your health whether it's physical health or mental health or whatever, it's, it's worth it. And sometimes you have to try more than one thing or more than one doctor or more than one counselor. Uh, I, I also, you know, re-engaged with God. I started my prayer time and Bible reading in the morning again. You know, I went to my pastor's wife and asked for help in prayer. And that was big for me because I thought, um, you know, Christian's not supposed to be depressed. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard of, oh, a pill won't fix it. I'm like, well, that's true. It was almost like there's this stigma of if you go get an antidepressant, then you're not trusting God enough. Mm -hmm. But for me, the medication gave me just enough of a bump where I could do these other things. So, yeah, a pill by itself is not going to fix it. And in my case, prayer alone didn't fix it. 
you know, I, I just wanted God to reach out and magically heal me. And he totally can. But in my case, he wanted me to walk through the process of partnering with him in laying hold of my, my healing and my wholeness and walking through those steps. Um, uh, we, we also have to remember that God creates doctors. So we have yes, somebody yes. help us. Yeah, this is true. And like we get that on a physical sense, but sometimes people still have hangups on a mental health perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe. I'm also big on the integration of these things. You know, your physical health can affect your mental health and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And our spirit is all integrated in these. I think in Western Christianity, we tend to disregard the body and the physical things. We think that's separate um, from our mental health or our spiritual health, and they're not. They're all integrated. No. Mm-hmm. And so mental, um, the mind, the, the thought process is another thing that I'm big on in, in our mindset, changing our mindset and the way we think about the things that happen to us how we now, interpret them. I have seen a picture of you running. Are you, are you, do you still run? Um, I'm not currently right now. I had uh, hip surgery last year <laughs> in January. And right as I was coming out, you know, right as I was able to start going to the gym again, that's when all the gyms closed because of COVID. Oh, and yeah. um, so I've had some issues and running is no longer possible for me right now. Um, but I did really enjoy that, that season of running. It's an excellent anti-anxiety <laughs> situation. You know, I just go run off all my anxious energy and, and um, it for works me, better than for me, medication. It's swimming. It's, it's water aerobics mm-hmm. now. You know, a little bit yeah. of less gravity and weight on the, on the hip. Right. Um, but yeah. it's still See, a way need to, to, you need to find a pool out there in northeast Texas. Well, yeah, I need to find a lower impact thing because all that impact was messing up my joints. But um, See, I have hang-ups about swimming from water survival at the academy. <laughs> PTSD from that too. Like if I get in a pool, I'm afraid I'm going to die. So okay, we got to work on that too because there's nothing greater than getting control of looking at. For me, especially after after Lou died, um, I would look up as I was doing laps, especially as doing backstroke. There's something Uh on the ceiling that was straight, and I would just keep that. I would be looking at that straight line, and it would keep me straight down the middle of the lap pool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there's great control in, in, in taking care of your body like that, and, and mm-hmm. that is part of your um, your holds, I mean your hopes, H-O-P-E-S, it was the mm-hmm. S there is practice the self-care and a strong body, which so many, especially during the pandemic now, I think so many people mm-hmm. have just kind of let it go. I know I put yeah. on a few extra pounds just because it's easy to stay in and eat, and mm-hmm. That just for me, that's depressing. You know, seeing that extra pound is like, oh, I've got to get this yeah. off. And then, so you don't, but you just tell us about your book a little bit and the name of it, how people can get a hold of it. Yeah, it's called Undefeated from Trial to Triumph. And um, it started as a journal in my morning quiet times with God as I would write down things that, you know, thoughts that I had or things that were meaningful to me. It was actually at the encouragement of my counselor because I would have times where I was really depressed and I couldn't see a reason to hope at all. And then I would have times where I was okay. And I was like, why was I so upset last week? You know? So she told me, when you're, when you're feeling okay, write a letter to your depressed self of what that depressed person needs to remember. And so that's what I started doing is writing that down. And three quarters of the way through, I'm like, I think this is a book. <laughs> and uh, then it grew to be too big of a book. So I chopped it up into thirds and I made it a nonfiction trilogy. I don't know if that's a thing. So the, the second book is coming out uh, sometime this year. It's at the editors right now, but it's called Undaunted, Your Battle Plan for Victorious Living. And it goes through all those five areas of, you know, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. And then I added 
the fifth one, uh, motivational or a strong will, the perseverance, you know, the, the ability to, to rise again after you fall. Mm -hmm. So you see definitely the value of journaling through the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I've always been kind of a writer person, but for me, when I write something down, it helps me solidify my thoughts, mm -hmm. and then I can go back and reread it later when I forget that thought that I had. I've always said, you know, if I'm the only person that ever reads my book, it was worth it because yeah. it helped me process through everything. And there's sometimes, you know, when I'm having a bad day and I'll go back and read something I wrote and I'm like, wow, you know, <laughs> I forgot that. You know, I knew that truth at one time, but I've forgotten it in the midst of the pressure I'm feeling today. And um, so I don't, my writing encourages me, even if it <laughs> hopefully it helps others too. Well, and also I found when I wrote my book too, it was helping me to release the emotions of the painful thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I I can hear it in your voice now. I'm sure it's changed over the years that being able to talk about losing the, the, the baby is now very powerful because mm -hmm. it has become your passion to mm -hmm. educate and to let everybody right. know that it's okay to talk about these things. So do you feel mm -hmm. that when you're talking now versus when you first came out? Yeah, definitely. It gives purpose and meaning to his life to me. You know, his life was so brief. Um, but when I can use my experience from that to help others, it's like I can see, you know, a greater plan, a bigger picture. And, you know, if I help somebody else um, to not feel as bad as I felt when I was going through that, you know, then, you know, there's, it just gives meaning and purpose to that pain. It doesn't erase it or take it away. But um, I, I don't believe that God wastes anything. I believe he can redeem anything. And so, you know, I struggled for a lot of years and it felt pointless and, and wasteful and useless to me. But now I can go back and see how God was at work in those things and how he's using these things for good now. Mm -hmm. When you're in the middle of trying to deal with the raw emotions of a tragedy, you don't want to hear someone say, oh, God works all things together for good. But it's true. He does. You just don't want to hear it right away. <laughs> you know, right. you need to give that some time. But now, you know, I've gone through this healing. And for me, a big part of it was my counselor did um, EMDR. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Eye movement reprocessing and desensitization. Okay. It's a mouthful. But um, that helped me get unstuck from those emotions uh, prior to that treatment. I was not able to talk about my son without falling apart and breaking up in tears. And this was years later. And so it's because of the healing that I went through with that with my counselor that now it's still there. The memories are still there, but I can talk about it without reliving it. Um, so now I, I'm, I'm free now to share about the thing. And I, I always think it's ironic that, you know, for years, like we said, I tried to hide the fact that I was depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's that woman behind the smile thing again. And now, like, I, you know, I get on podcasts, I put it out there, you know, I, talking to people, I'm like, hey, I struggle with depression and anxiety. This is part of my message. It's no, more, it's no longer a shameful thing. It's this is the thing that I deal with and I want to help other people who deal with it because I know I'm not alone. And when we take those dark secrets that we try to stuff in the closet, when we drag all that stuff out into the light, it loses its power over us. You know, it's, it's no longer a shameful secret I'm trying to hide. It's now like, hey, this is a thing that I deal with, and here's how I deal with it, and maybe that can help you too. So did you ever have anybody, what I call, give you the stink eye because you're telling the story? I, I don't think that I have, like not since 
you know, I felt like people kind of brushed me off initially when I tried to, as I described, but. Because okay. um, I have, I don't a, know. you know, I, I work with an organization called SCARS, which is the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. And the, the hardest part for people to, when they come out with their story, they don't want to tell their story. They're afraid of what people are going to think about what happened. Yeah. And. Like initially, I'm sure when you came out with talking about depression, you know, I know growing up, we never talked about mm. mental health. We didn't talk about that kind of stuff. So um, did you ever feel that people were, were judging you as you came out? And if so, how did you get past that? Or did you just say, it doesn't matter because my um, story? Yeah, I, I don't recall feeling that, but I was more focused on trying to help other people. And if somebody's going to be judging me about that, then they probably aren't the person I'm trying to reach because they're not sympathetic to that cause. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter really. I'm, you know, I'm trying to help people who do resonate with my message. And so the people who don't resonate with my message, well, they, they just go listen to somebody else. (laughs) Perfect. Um, But you know, as a commander spouse, you know, here in our our last recent assignment, you know, um, I would talk all the time at our spouse functions of, you know, this is a hard life we live you know, our guys are gone six months at a time. And, and so I, I would share openly my own struggle with mental health. I might get help. Here are your resources. You know, the the military has great resources for these things. Mm -hmm. Utilize them and don't worry. You know, I, I share how I stressed so much about this affecting my husband's career. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, what, what's more important, (laughs) you know, your career or your, your husband's career or your, your mental health, you know, you need to take care of yourself. And especially as, Young moms, people just need someone to say, hey, self-care is important. It's not selfish. It's necessary. And you need to, to learn how to make time for that early on. Well, I, I so resonate with what you're saying because it's exactly how I feel. And, uh, you know, I try to put myself around people that understand um, that and we, we share the same things. And that's why we're doing Stand Up and Speak Up because it's something mm-hmm. that there's so many of us out there that have a voice but feel like we need to squash it and yeah. we don't because like mm-hmm. you said there's a, there's one person out there that needs to hear what's happened to mm-hmm. us and in your case you know as a squadron commander as, as a commander's wife um, you're in such a position I mean I remember my sister-in-law when my brother was commander she was in charge of the wives groups and all this and what she said really had an impact on people and if if what you went through and what I've gone through is meant to have happened because we can be there for one other person, then it was worth mm-hmm. happening. It's worth mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. and the platform that you have now, you have a podcast. Tell a, bit, a little bit about your podcast and how they can get you on your website. Yeah, sure. It's called Resilient Life Hacks. And every week I just have on a different guest who's been through something, some sort of trial, trauma, or tragedy and come out the other side and now they have a message. I believe we all have a story, kind of just like you were just sharing. And when we share our stories and we learn from each other, um, we don't feel alone. And we also learn new ways to cope with what life throws at us. I've interviewed so many different people and there's, you know, nobody, no two people have the same story, Mm -hmm. but there's different parts of each interview I do where I resonate with it. It's like, I don't exactly have that same thing, but I have this other thing where I felt a similar way. Mm-hmm. And um, we can just learn so much from each other. So uh, that's called Resilient Life Hacks. You can find it at resilientlifehacks.com. Um, my personal website is elizabethmeyers.me, M-E. 
And um, that's kind of the hub for everything. So that's, you can link to my podcast there. I've got a bunch of downloadable files like this, uh, how to hold on to your hopes that you mentioned earlier. It's kind of an acronym of things to remember to, to overcome depression. I've also got one for peace to overcome anxiety. Uh, there's a free prayer guide that you can download, a bunch of other stuff. Um, so that's all at elizabethmyers.me. And that's kind of where you can link to, you know, find my book find the podcast, whatever else you want to find. Well, perfect. Thank you so much. And thanks for opening up about this topic. I know that it's, you know, very personal to me. And I know mm -hmm. if it's personal to two of us, then there's yeah. plenty of other women out there that need to hear the story. Yeah. And, and I thank you for that. I thank you, uh, mm -hmm. you and your husband, for your service, your kids, for the next mm -hmm. generation. Uh, yeah. It's just wonderful. And I, I wish you guys mm -hmm. all the very best. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you and your family for your service as well. Well, thanks. So stay on after the show's over. I know that there are some folks here that would like to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So thanks, okay. everybody, for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment into being your best self. If you've been a victim of a cybersecurity crime or cybercrime scam, uh, visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. We didn't talk much about SCARS today, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. But we are an incorporated nonprofit crime victim assistance organization based in Miami, and we support scam victims worldwide. Uh, if you can make a small donation, visit our website, and I'll have that up on the show slides. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfotaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here today. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com for additional information and resources. Visit our YouTube page. There'll be replays of this show there. Enjoy the replays and share them. This is an important topic today that I really hope that you can take to others and share and realize that you're not alone and it's time to stand up and speak up. So thanks everybody. Have a great day. We appreciate you being here.